0: Welcome to Afternoons With Me. I'm Bill Arnold. What a great hour we just had with Dr. Glenn Pickering. And wouldn't you know it, we're going to start off this hour with a book uh, written by Angela Mill. She's going to be my guest coming up in the next couple of minutes. She's written a book called Bless Your Husband, Creative Ways to Encourage and Love Your Man. That's going to be uh, coming up in just a little bit. And she says a lot can change in just 15 minutes if you're intentional and creative. So looking forward to that. That's going to be awesome. So, uh, if any of you missed our one, I do recommend going back. There was some great material for people who are struggling in relationships. You can go to myfaithradio.com and the afternoon uh, show page with me, and then you can just hear the podcast. It'll be up right after the show. So, let me take 60 seconds and we'll bring Angela on. And thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.
1: You never know the impact your choice to listen to Faith Radio will have on someone, whether it's giving someone a ride, inviting them into your home, or even playing Faith Radio at your business. You help the relevant Bible preaching and family-focused teaching of Faith Radio reach far and wide. We recently heard an encouraging story from a listener about connecting with a fellow Faith Radio listener.
2: I was in the gift shop looking for a quick gift, and this lady that worked in there was just kind of filling in. She's on the highway five days a week. I said, oh, you have Faith Radio on your
0: radio. She said, oh, I couldn't live without Faith Radio. It keeps me calm. Uh, The only way she could handle that road rage five days a week was uh, listening every morning and every night going home from work. So I thought you'd enjoy hearing her testimony. Share your
1: story with us by calling the toll-free Faith Line. Leave us a message anytime at 877-93-FAITH. That's 877-933-2484.
0: guest, Angela Mills. Uh, she started blogging in 2008 and has written more than 60 articles for magazines and websites. She also runs a Facebook group for thousands of Christian wives. She's been married to her very best friend, Eric, for 18 years and is a homeschool mom and a proud grandma. She's written a book called Bless Your Husband, Creative Ways to Encourage and Love Your Man. Angela, welcome.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be here.
0: Well, thank you for saying that. It sounded very sincere. I appreciate that. Um so this book let's let's just jump in it seems like it's a really wonderful invitation for wives uh but it sounds like this m- might not be uh easy for some
2: True it isn't always easy Yeah
0: So, um, yeah. so what I mean just yeah what might be some of the things that would prevent uh mm-hmm. wives from blessing their husbands like on a regular basis
2: Well, I think the most obvious thing is if you're not in a great place in your marriage and maybe you're upset with your husband or you're holding on to some hurt feelings or you could even be angry. And in those times, it's very hard to to dig down into a place in yourself where you can really say, I'm going to turn this around. I'm going to choose to bless my husband. I'm going to love him. I want to make him smile. I want to make him happy. Um, Usually those aren't the feelings that we have when we're upset. Um, So that can be difficult. Another thing that can be difficult is when we're just busy and getting busy. Sometimes you tend to get into a rut and you can be really happy in your marriage and in a great content place, but not really working on it every day and not seeking out those little moments and little things that you can do to bless your husband. And then that's when you kind of can get into just a rut that's just kind of so-so and you're just, before you know it, you know, days and weeks and months have passed and you haven't really had any special time together.
0: Isn't anything that's really worth doing requires a little bit of extra effort? I mean, doesn't it seem that if, if you're feeling challenged about blessing your husband... Isn't, isn't there a principle in life that, that says, okay, so it's going to be a little bit of a challenge today. That's okay.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, that's so true. And that's when you need to really um, dig in and, and try to find that in yourself and pray and ask God to give you the strength so that you can overcome your own feelings about the situation and do, you know, what's right and what's hard.
0: Yeah. So when you talk about blessing your husband, Angela, is the desire to try to change your husband?
2: Uh, no, it's not. Of course You know, there might be things that um, you do throughout this book and throughout the study that do end up changing your marriage and making positive changes. But it's really important that you don't go into it with that mindset because most of the time, if you're trying to change someone, you're going to be let down because i think we all kind of know that the only person we can change is ourselves and even though we might want to change things uh we're just we're not responsible for that number one that's that's not our role and number two it's not going to work so <laughs> you're going to be disappointed
0: mhm there's probably different phases of a marriage where a younger wife is maybe a couple of years into the marriage and she's absolutely delighting in all of this and maybe there's some like I heard on the last hour that have been in a marriage for 15 years or or more and they're they're in a very a different place they're very challenged they're weary they're a little bit exhausted so what advice do you have for that wife
2: Well for someone that's weary and just tired or maybe jaded in their marriage I would say that's the time to draw near to your husband and stay connected to him and to stay connected to God. And so if you're staying connected to God by, you know, praying and reading your Bible and trying to live out, you know, his word in your life and and do the things that the Bible tells you to do and you're staying connected to your husband, then there's not going to be a space that develops between you. And I think that a lot of times, I know myself included, if I'm in a weary space with my husband or I'm you know, just kind of over it. <laughs> we all go through those seasons. We start to crave space. And that's just such a bad idea. I think to ignore that, that desire for space, unless, of course, unless you're in a situation where, you know, there's maybe um, abuse going on, or something that's just really not biblical, And then of course, you need to take the space. But if it's just, you know, sort of regular marriage problem, just stay connected to your husband and draw near to him. And, you know, face the problem head on together.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, the way you've laid this book out is, is uh, very sweet. It's loving. It's uh, you've got, you know, places where you can take notes and do a little bit of light journaling and answer some questions and do some soul searching. But you also talk about um, the four weeks you divide the challenge into. So would you talk about each of those?
2: It's divided into four weeks and every day there's a little, this is where the 15 minutes come in, it's uh, reading and um, a few things that you get to do every day. And so the four weeks are themed. The first week I call um, the wife of his youth. And the idea in the first week is to kind of go back to how you were when you and your husband first met. And to think about the positive things back then, maybe you were more affectionate or maybe you complained less. Uh, Those were my two things. (laughs) Maybe (laughs) you just spent more time with him in general, you know, whatever it was that maybe attracted him to you. Look at those things and try to bring them back into your life now. So we do that by looking back into the past a little bit and just bringing back some of the really simple things like think about if you had a honeymoon, think about your honeymoon and maybe recreate a little tiny aspect of that just to have that happy memory or, you know, listen to your song and dance around the kitchen after dinner one night, just just doing those little things. And so um, that's week one. And then week two I call the servant wife, which is really just becoming um, – having that mindset of serving like Jesus did when he was here on earth and how he served his disciples and really everyone that he came across, he had that mindset of a servant. And, um, we're told in Philippians two, to kind of adapt that same mindset. And so that's the theme of week two is to learn how to, to serve joyfully. And in that week, I actually include a day where we talk about when you need your husband's help because I've heard that a lot from wives is it's not so much it's not hard for me to serve my husband but he never helps me and that's not really the focus of the book but I found that it could be really helpful to you know learn how to communicate your needs to your husband in a way that doesn't turn into an argument or a fight or cause discord in your family and so we do address that too. Um, in week three I call the Barnabas wife and Barnabas was a man in the Bible who was given the nickname the Son of Encouragement. So that whole week is just about being a good encourager and I give some of the the tools and scriptures to help you learn how to encourage your husband in different ways. And the last week I called the beautiful wife. And so we're obviously talking about inner beauty and uh, just developing some of those traits inside of you that, you know, makes you just shine with joy for the Lord and bless your husband in that way. Mm -hmm.
0: I just think it's uh, beautiful the way you've laid this out, Angela. Really nice job and nice work. I'm I'm in the uh, Servant Wife chapter of your book, and, you know, you're you're offering lots of practical little things. I mean, um, like here's an example of uh, something you can do in the servant uh, mode is— uh, run an errand for him, make sure he has a place to drop his things when he gets home. Uh, make some phone calls for him, make sure his laundry is done and he has clean clothes. And tidy up the bedroom so he has a peaceful place to come home to. Yeah,
2: and those are ideas to choose from. I don't uh, uh, there's a whole list. Yeah, I know there's the a lot there's a ways. long
0: list. I just yeah, I just read um, off a couple.
2: Yeah, I'm very clear. No one should be doing all of these things for their husband or feel like they have to do all of these things. It's more of a menu of ideas to choose from, what works for you in your day and what ways would your husband really appreciate it. You know, we're not trying to act like husbands are helpless and they can't do anything for themselves. So, yeah, sometimes people are a little put off when they hear the title of that chapter, but then when they start reading it, they realize, you know, it's a good thing.
0: Right. And little things like have dinner ready when he gets home from work. Send Faith yeah. Radio a generous donation in his name, that kind of stuff. It's, it's oh, sure. beautiful. Yeah. Of <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> let me take a little break. Uh, Angela Mills is my guest. She's written this book called Bless Your Husband Creative Ways to Encourage and Love Your Man. We'll take a short break and be right back. Mills has written a book called Bless Your Husband, Creative Ways to Encourage and Love Your Man. We're chatting about it now, and Angela, you've really done a nice job with this book. All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, the beautiful wife, and in that chapter, we're talking about uh, dwelling on the good in him, and uh, my friend Todd Mullican often says, uh, you, you need to love the man you have, not the man you don't have.
2: Yes, true, very true.
0: So, how important is it to... To take the characteristics of what you love in your man and let him know
2: well the first um, I think the first part of that is to identify what you love about your husband and just come up with the traits in him that that you love and that you adore and maybe what made him attractive to you in the first place. That can be kind of hard if you're not in a great place. I remember doing this exercise just for myself. Um, my husband and I weren't really getting along, and I was being a little stubborn and I thought. I could only think of one thing, <laughs> the good. And I I realized I was kind of being a brat in that moment. And so I gave myself a few days to add more to the list. And the more I added, the more that I thought of. And so the first step is really to identify what do you love about your husband? What does he bring to your life um, that you wouldn't have if he wasn't there? What ways does he, you know, maybe fulfill some of the gaps that you have in your own personality or, or ways of doing things. And then, it's so easy. I think we all have the tendency to dwell on the negative. It's just kind of the patterns that our brain makes sometimes. And so instead of dwelling on the negative things like, oh, he never does this for me, or maybe even comparing him to other men like, oh, my friend's husband is you know, always writing wonderful things about her on Facebook, and my husband never does, or just little things like that, when you have those thoughts to kind of capture those thoughts and, and push them aside and dwell instead on the good things and the Bible tells us many times to think on what is good and it just really does start to change your mind and change your heart and once you're in a good place with that and you realize all the good qualities that he has then you can start encouraging him with those things too and speaking those words to him or even just sending him a little text or leaving him a note you know on his nightstand one night and kind of you know you're just it starts with you and your own self, and then you're it's coming pouring out of you, and it ends up blessing him too. So yeah, yeah.
0: What advice would you have then for the the wife who does these things, these blessings, these little acts of love, but they go unnoticed?
2: Well, that can be really hard. Uh, I think we've probably all experienced that in life at some time or another. And you do something that you think is really thoughtful or you put a lot of work into and the person you did it for doesn't really notice it can be hurtful and it can hurt your feelings but the advice I would give would just be to just keep going just keep doing it stay faithful and know that God sees everything that you do and so you're going to be rewarded for that in some way or another and it it might not be that you know your husband's like wow that's awesome thank you and sometimes he might even criticize what you did and and have a bad attitude about it. And so if you're doing it out of love for the Lord and out of love for your husband and, and trying to follow, you know, God's Word that says to love your husband, and, and you're doing this in different ways, then He's going to reward you, uh, eventually one way or another.
0: Mm-hmm. And, you, you've yeah. done such a nice job of laying this book out, and at the end of each chapter you've got a, a, a progression of, of pray, meditate, dwell, breathe, how do these yes. steps move the needle forward in revitalizing a marriage that might be flat?
2: Well, thank you. It is. That's um, Those are daily things, and so pray is obviously a way that, you know, you're. it's a sample prayer every day, it's something that you can pray for your husband, and each prayer um, has a scripture reference, so you can see what the Bible has to say about that. Uh, meditate is just a little exercise each day. It's one minute or two minutes most. Um, that has to do with the weekly Bible verse. And so you might be writing it down that day or just saying it out loud, um, very simple things, underlining certain words. And and every day you do one little thing. So by the end of the week, hopefully that verse is really cemented in your mind. And dwell is a fill-in-the-blank statement. This kind of goes to what we were just talking about where keeping those positive things in mind. So every day in the book, I give you a little idea of a positive statement about yourself or your husband. Cause it's, it's good to, you know, focus on the good in ourselves too, and not always be sort of beating up ourselves or the mistakes that we made. And so you just fill that in and something to think about, like, you know, I love my husband's blank or, you know, they're a little more specific than that, but mm-hmm. just, you know, little ideas of things that you can think about. Um, And the next thing is, oh, breathe. So that's a daily reading uh, where I just kind of encourage you and maybe dig into Scripture a little bit. Um, And that's really where hopefully the spiritual growth of your own will come in. And, yeah, and then there's a little reflex section each day, and that's, like, guided journaling. So if you want to answer those questions or um, dig a little deeper, you can.
0: Mm -hmm. Now— Angela, the tongue is so powerful it can build up yeah. or tear down. Uh we all know that to be true. So um uh how do we how do we uh how do we do the better the better route which is to build up.
2: This is hard. This is a hard one. I think the Bible talks about it so much because God knew that we were going to have trouble with this and words can do such damage. Unfortunately, it's easier to say hurtful things sometimes than it is to say good things that are going to build the person up. And so, really, it comes from having the strength to focus on the good, comes from, again, what we just talked about, which is dwelling on the good things. So, the Bible says what you have in your heart is going to come up out of your mouth. And so, if we are always sitting there thinking these negative things about our husband, or talking about him to our friends, or thinking about all the things he isn't, or whatever it is that could possibly hurt him, that is eventually going to come out, you know, when you argue or when things build up and there's a big, you know, disagreement. So starting in your own heart and really just, like, teaching yourself to dwell on the good things and also praying every day and asking God to help you hold your tongue and to say positive things, that really does help. And another thing that helps is having lots of Scripture memorized. That's why I give us a memory verse every week, because when you fill your heart with Scripture, it really does come out mm-hmm. um, in the times when you need it. God's yep. so, so good to give us that.
0: I love that. Now, you caution wives, Angela, to reminisce with their husbands, but to reminisce wisely. What does that mean? Yes.
2: Yes. Um, again, sometimes it's just our nature to sort of go down a negative path. And I know this was very true in my own life. I, my husband and I would have an issue. We'd get over it. We'd forgive each other and move on. But it would stay in my head. And I would start thinking about it again, you know, later. Or he would do something similar, and I would bring up, oh, well, that's just like last time. And that's not helpful at all. And so it can actually be really beneficial to your marriage, to go back and reminisce and think about good things, like it could be the simplest thing, like your first kiss and remembering that or remembering the first time he said he loved you, or maybe he did some really sweet thing for you once, or you guys had a great vacation and or you worked through something and you really faced a problem and came out on the other side. It's good to think about those things and kind of remind yourself of the history of your marriage and to just give yourself those warm, fuzzy feelings. You know, it's, it's a good thing. But if you start to go down the path of remembering arguments or ways that he let you down, that's not going to be helpful at all. Yeah. So choose to reminisce wisely and, and think about the good things.
0: All right. Here's a question for you, Angela. Is it important to pray for your husband and with him as well?
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, Praying for your husband, obviously, is going to bless him, and it's going to change your heart. Because we know when we start praying for people regularly, that's why God tells you, pray for your enemies. (laughs) Because (laughs) it really does start to change your heart. You start to see them through God's eyes. And praying with your husband, it really just roots your marriage in the Lord. So when those tough times come, you're strong in God, and you're strong in your faith, and you're already there. You know, you don't have to build up your prayer life with him, and you don't have to get to that place. You're already there. And I always say, if you have a husband that doesn't want to pray with you, because not all husbands are open to it, that just keep praying for him. And you can even, like, you know, reach your hand over when he's asleep and put it on his shoulder and say a little blessing and prayer for him, and he doesn't have to know. (laughs) You know, he might come around (laughs) eventually, so.
0: Well, we just uh, have a minute left, Uh, so if a if a woman picks up your book, what is your prayer for her?
2: Uh, well, my prayer would definitely be that she would grow closer to the Lord, uh, because the book is "Bless Your Husband," and all of all of these things are woven in throughout the book. But really, the at the core of it is drawing closer to God and being strengthened in your own faith, and out of that comes all of the love for other people. And, of course, the focus in this book is on your husband. So I would just pray that her marriage would be blessed and that she would be strengthened through this and that she would have perseverance to keep going and that she would find, you know, support around her and all of those things. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Angela, what, what is your favorite way to bless your husband?
2: Um. I'm, I'm big on baking. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, any any little thing that okay. has to do with baking like his favorite treats, that's my favorite way. <laughs> I need
0: to make sure you get the address of the studio here. <laughs> there has to be leftovers. Uh, thank you so much for this great uh, interview, and so nice to meet you. And your book is, you. is great. It's called Bless Your Husband, Creative Ways to Encourage and Love Your Man. And the author is Angela Mills. This has been my guest. Angela, thank you.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. This was great.
0: I have a great day. You too. All right. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, uh, Dr. Jeff Zwierink, don't think I didn't practice that name. Uh, we're going to talk about how old is the earth, young, young earth, old earth. We'll figure that out. He's a very smart guy. We'll be back in a little bit. show. Dr. Jeff Zwierink is an astrophysicist and that's all the introduction he's getting. Hey Jeff.
1: Hi Bill, how are you doing today?
0: (laughs) Uh, I'm just such a fan of yours. I gotta be honest, I I just think you're great and the last time we were on I was just, uh, I just loved our talk and frankly couldn't wait to talk to you again. Well good, I'm excited to be back today. Yeah, you got tons of credentials and I'm just being playful but... um, you're a senior research scholar at reasons to believe and we love that uh we love that organization.
1: Well good it's it's uh, nice to be able to talk with someone who uh, gets the message and wants to share it with others.
0: So. Yeah, well we've had uh, multiple conversations with uh, listeners over the last month about the age of the earth and it 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 gets to be sort of a perpetually interesting ongoing discussion and I'm I'm always I'm always looking to to have more discussion on that. So thank you for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think it is something that's a pretty interesting topic because it's easy to misunderstand where the relevance of that discussion happens. And it, if we're not careful, it's something that just people outside the church can look at and say, why would I want to be involved with that? And I don't think that's what we want to do with the discussion of how old the earth is.
0: Yeah. So how do we get started talking about this and, and sound like we... How do we get informed and sound intelligent about it?
1: Well, I I think uh, to me, one of the big issues is just whatever we're about as Christians, we want to be passionate about the truth because, yeah, I'm a Christian because I think Christianity is true. Uh, You know, that's you just read throughout scripture and it, where it speaks, it says, Hey, this is what happened and this is what happened. And, um, if God is who he is and Christ is who he said, he said he was, then, uh, that is the greatest thing that we could know and live our lives by. And so whatever we're do, whatever we do with the age of the earth and the first chapters of Genesis, we want to be passionate about what is the truth and how can we take that truth and de- tell it to the world so that they know who God is and can fellowship with him. And I I think that's, you know, we we want to be about sharing the gospel with the world, whatever else we do.
0: Mm -hmm. So when you hear uh, people say, say, I heard they found this rock that's 29.4 billion years old. How do you respond to that? I'd say that
1: would be impressive because the (laughs) earth is only 13 billion or the universe is only 13 billion years years old to have something that's twice the age (laughs) of the universe is impressive. But I don't think that was your question. I think the fact of if we find things that are more ancient than a few thousand years, um, to me, I think that's when I look at how the data rests, that it looks like the universe is about 14 billion years old, and the earth is about four and a half billion years old. And so finding things that are that age are not that big of a problem to me, because I think that's very consistent with what scripture has to read.
0: Mm-hmm. So you think the earth is about four and a half billion years old?
1: That is correct. And uh, you know, what? I, the why I would say that is that as I've looked at the scientific data, there's a lot of evidence out there that indicates the earth is pretty ancient, uh, you know, in the billions of years. And as I looked at what Christian theologians who hold Scripture in high regard, as they've looked at Genesis and what does it have to say, they find that that's a perfectly acceptable, legitimate reading of what the text is saying there. And so uh, I find that's the way that reconciles God's revelation and Scripture with God's revelation and creation the best.
0: Mm-hmm. So when there's a clash of ideas, How do we navigate our way through these where the people say, you know, no, the earth is only about 6,000 years old?
1: Well, so to me, what's important there, again, is, you know, God has revealed himself in creation. God's revealed himself in Scripture and we want to find the truth of that revelation the best we can and i think it's important to recognize that this side of heaven we're never going to get all of that and so we need to we need to be to make sure that uh what we're what we're resting and the hills we're dying on on that truth are the ones that really do impact whether christianity and and scripture are correct or not uh, you know so for example i would say if we ever found out that uh you know jesus lived a thousand years earlier than what the bible indicates that would be something very problematic because that would change the core of christianity because who christ is and when he lived and what he accomplished That's the core of Christianity. When it comes down to the age of the earth, um, I can't find any significant doctrine of Christianity that rises and falls on what the age is. Uh, you know, what, what I think is an important doctrine is the, you know, the the authority and uh, the correctness or the, the truth of Scripture. But I find that Christians can, who again, Christians who hold Scripture in high regard, they can disagree on the age of the earth without doubting the inerrancy of Scripture or the authority of Scripture or anything that really is uh, central to Christianity, if you will.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, Jeff, when we, we look at certain events in Scripture that we read, like a world flood, do most societies throughout all of world history, around the world, document the proof of a world flood?
1: Well, I, I do know or my my understanding, and I, and I can say i 've not studied this to to know first hand knowledge, but i do I do think it's a pretty reasonable proposition that when you go out and look throughout most cultures throughout the world, they do have the story in the past of a flood that wiped out humanity. And so that matches very well with that biblical flood in uh, the early chapters of Genesis. I think it's chapter 6, 7, and 8, or maybe it's 7, 8, 9, where God sends a flood that judges all of humanity because humanity has become corrupt and, uh, you know, kind of wipes out humanity and starts over with the eight, the eight people, Noah, his wife, and their three sons, and their wives on the ark there. And so the fact that all these different cultures do have uh, a story in the past of a flood of that nature, to me, is indication, or it's at least makes the account in Scripture a very reasonable account of what's actually gone on.
0: Mm-hmm. So what are some things that are compatible with creation? I mean, when you hear about the Big Bang, uh, could God have said, all right, we're going to start uh, with a bang? Or I, we know that he created the world and people and everything in it in seven days. Um, do we think that that was just a 24-hour day? How do we how do we look at that?
1: Well, I, th- I think there are two aspects of that. There's one, you have to look and ask the question, what have theologians said about... What the universe is, how how long it's been around, um, who's sustaining it, and what I find again, uh, you know, I've, you can find people who say anything, who claim to be a Christian, who claim to be a theologian, and say anything, but when I restrict that pool to people who hold Scripture in high regard and are genuinely pursuing, okay, what is God revealed, with the intent of adjusting their lives to live by it rather than making it say what they want to hear, <clears throat> what I find is that those Christians are kind of universally agreed that God is ultimately the creator and sustainer, that creation isn't uh, just something that God rearranges what was out there, or creation isn't something that kind of happens on its own and God just kind of winds it up and lets it play out, that God is intimately involved in creating and sustaining this universe in which we live. And that um, as a result of that, that the way the creation behave is ultimately anchored in God's character. So if God is sustaining, he is sustaining it in such a way that is so reliable that we can actually talk about these things called the laws of physics. You know, for a long time, I used to think the laws of physics were these entities that, you know, if, if I'm honest, that I thought God just kind of started creation, put these laws of physics on top and kind of let it play out. And I realize that's actually kind of bad theology that uh you know as Christianity, the way it describes it, is that God creates and sustains that if God withdraws his hand, it would just tumble into non existence, but that he sustains it so reliably that there is order and regularity and patterns, and so uh, you know, in scientific lingo, that there's these laws of physics that we can talk about because ultimately anchored in God's unchangeable, immutable character. And so when you take that God's the creator and sustainer, that it has a beginning, that it's governed by these constant laws of physics, if you will, um, and that there's an expanding universe, uh, you know, that that's... You, that's big bang cosmology right there. Uh, you know, those are the tenets of big bang cosmology from a scientific perspective. And so we see that what we find in the, that scientific model of the universe, if you will, we find a match with what the Bible describes about who God is and how he relates to creation.
0: Mm. So Jeff, let me ask if, if you, I come across someone and say that they believe that science has confirmed a, a young earth, uh, what I asked them then, how old do they think the earth is? I mean, what would be considered a young earth? Now you said you think the world's, the earth has been around 4.2 billion years. Is that considered young or old?
1: That's considered old. So, okay. so that generally breaks out into two classes there. There's the old earth creationists who would argue that the scientific community has largely got the dates of things correct. And so the universe is about 14 billion years old. The earth is about four and a half billion years old. And humanity is something on the order of 200,000 years old, something, you know, between 100 and 200,000 years is where humanity as the Bible would define humanity has been around. And then there's the young Earth view, which would say that the Earth and the universe and humanity are all in the six to ten thousand year range. That mm-hmm. the, so commensurate with that young Earth view is that the time, you know, those days in Genesis are twenty four hour days, and so you go back to humanity was created on day six. Um, there's six days between, or those six 24-hour days, then between the creation of humanity and the formation and creation, of- or the creation of the universe and the formation of Earth, and so everything is about six to ten thousand years old, and so th- that tends to be the two general classes. I mean, nobody's arguing for a universe that's trillions of years old. And nobody's arguing for a universe that's millions of years old. It's either kind of six to ten thousand years, or you know, four to four to fifteen billion years. That's uh, those are general the two timescales that are at play there.
0: Okay, so if if someone is going to argue for a, a younger earth and they bring up things like the sediment on the seafloor or the soft tissue and fossils, how do we um, discuss that?
1: Well, I, I think the first question you ask is you, you go ask and say, okay, what is the complete explanation there? And okay. so, um, you know, in 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 every one of those, as I've looked at them, there is a there is something that leads to that conclusion. You know, so you take the one of, uh, you know, the the salt in the oceans or the sediment on the ocean floor or you know the amount of dust on the moon. All of those are say, okay, we can measure how much sedimentation is falling onto the surface of the or onto the floor of the ocean, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then if we say, all right, if it's been falling for this long. Then that would mean there's so much there, and we know it's less than that, so we can put a date on it. That's the general argument that goes on there. What, what, the, and, and there's there's a reasonable to, this reasonableness to that sort of argument. But what I find often it may be missing in there is that you have to account for all of the processes that affect. Because in an old Earth view, yes, I agree that there's sedimentation falling onto the ocean floor, but I would also argue that the ocean floor is continually being recycled, that there's uh, parts of the ocean floor that are being subducted under other parts of the Earth. And so we see the evidence of that along the coasts, you know, out off the continental shelves. There's places where, or the, the ocean floor is moving underneath the continents, if you will. And so you, when you account for both of those processes, the fact that there's only so much sediment there matches in an old Earth view as well. And so part of the explanation there or part of how to approach that is say not just – do I take this one argument and get to an answer? Do I do I actually account for all of the data that's out there? Mm-hmm. And, and not to be too snarky here, I mean I don't want to in, and imply that, but I could also, if I were to take that 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 same kind of argument, I know how much sedimentation happens. I can measure the amount of sediment on the floor. Therefore, it can't be any older than this. Well, I know how I know how quickly my family consumes Cheerios and I know (laughs) how much Cheerios could fit in my cupboard and I can see how much Cheerios are left. Therefore, my, my home could only be so old. Well, it's reasonable, but it misses the fact that my wife goes out and buys Cheerios every now and again. And so when I account for the fact that I buy a certain amount of Cheerios and I only have so much cupboard space and so I only buy three boxes at a time, then you realize, okay, I've got to be careful how I draw a date out of that. And mm-hmm. so all that's really just to say we need to make sure we're accounting for all of the data going in there, not just one piece of or, – or one slice of the data. We have to account for all of the data. Mm-hmm. And 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 I have found in my studies where I've been able to explore certain areas that when I do that – the, the explanation that accounts for all of the data best, not only the scientific data, but I would argue even the scriptural data, is that the earth is, you know, four and a half billion years old.
0: Mm-hmm. So are there other diagnostics that we can look at? Like, is there a, a, a helium content that's been diminished or a magnetic field that's weakening or anything that go to help us gauge how old the earth is? That- uh all,
1: all of those have some ability to measure that uh you know the the hard part is again getting all of those factors in place and i th- i think it's funny that, or interesting that you bring up the the helium content because that has been something that over the past decade uh, maybe 15 years um has been something where uh there were some young earth creationists who looked at radioactive decay and most of the helium on the earth as of now is from radioactive decay. And so they're asking the question, you know, can we monitor, use the amount of helium to get an age for the earth? And what's interesting is they looked at these uh, uh, things that are called uh, zircons. um, And there are these places where we dug way down in the earth, And so you can measure them at different rates. And what the the Young Earth creationists did was looked at these zircons and uh, extracted the helium out of them to say, uh, in a particular technique, to say how much helium was there and could they get an evidence of how much it was. And the conclusion they came to is that, you looked at how the helium content varied with depth and temperature, and they said, you know, you draw you kind of put this graph on it or graph all that data and then you extrapolate back you get an H from the univer or the Earth based on this helium data of being six thousand years, which I think was a pretty impressive piece of analysis because that's not a not a trivial uh set of, or not a trivial uh process to go through. Um, what was interesting, though, is not too long after that data had been published, I had a fellow who was an expert in uh, diffusion technology. So he made uh, semiconductors, which, you know, related to computers and the stuff you build there, and how things diffuse is really important for the quality of computer uh, equipment that you get out. And so he, he had taken his expertise in diffusion analysis and applied it to this experiment, And what he found was that when you used a realistic diffusion model, uh, not this kind of simple diffusion model that was uh, put forth by the young earth creationists, he said that when you used a a, a realistic diffusion model, the ages for these zircons actually matched the radioactive dating technique, or the dates got from radioactive dating from the rocks that these zircons were in. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think... In all of this what i would say is that more often than not the the while the conceptually it's simple what you're trying to do working that out is a rather difficult and technical process so um you know kind of how i do this uh, because i don't have the ability i don't have the expert in diffusion technology to know that what i do is i go out and i ask the question okay what do scientists have to say about this? And particularly, I I try and find Christians I know in those various disciplines and ask for their expertise there. So there's a geologist I know, know, a number of geologists I know who are Christians. And when stuff like this comes up, Alaska says, so what's going on here? What what can I trust and what can I trust? And how do I think about that? Mm -hmm. And I think what I found is that God has put people like that in those scientific disciplines and they're in churches so that when I don't have the expertise and when the the average person in the pew doesn't have the expertise, they've got someone they can go talk to who can help them navigate those things. And yeah. I find that as someone who's an expert in some of those areas and someone who's a novice in a lot of other areas, I find that tremendously helpful for me navigating what's really important and what's, what's, what's really going on here.
0: All right, Jeff, let me take a little break. Dr. Jeff Zwerik is my guest and I just got, uh, text messages from 35 friends that said Bill, you have no idea what you're talking about so anyway, I'll deal with that during the break we'll be right back Welcome back to the show. I've got Dr. Jeff's re-rink on. I call him Dr. Z. I bet you've been called that before.
1: I have. Generally, that's my dad, but I'll take it,
0: too. <laughs> All right. <laughs> are there any things out there, Jeff, that are, are clearly documented, like uh, the Great Barrier Reef or anything like that, where we go, we know how old this is?
1: Um... Well, you're asking me a question where I, I would generally go look to a lot of, a, I'd have to go look up specifically. Okay. I do know there are places where people can go in and look and ask the question, um, you know, how far back can we determine that it's at least this old? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I find interesting is that uh, uh, often it's portrayed, you know, uh, again, my my. What the argument I've heard is that you know, okay, you can't trust radioactive dating, or particularly carbon-14 dating. And so I have a a colleague that I know and who's done research into this with uh, some other uh, another geologist colleague. Who um, there are places where you can actually do two or three different kinds of dating. And so, for example, they've looked at. places where lakes, where, uh, annual sedimentation layers have been laid down. And in the process of doing that, there are different types of, uh, flora and fauna that are laid down there. And also they can do radioactive carbon dating on them. And so you can actually count the layers and you can look at the types of uh, organisms that are in there and you can use carbon 14 dating and they can actually count, you know, they, they can show that this, that, that the the two techniques line up. So where you think there's a year, you actually get that much carbon-14 dating. And so they can show that this process extends back well over, um, you know, on the order of 50,000 years by doing this, which puts you out beyond that 10,000-year range. Mm-hmm. But what's fascinating is that in doing that, they can also date various biblical things, you know, like the building of Hezekiah's Tunnel, or you know maybe not biblical, but the eruption of Mount Pompeii or some or Vesuvius that destroyed Pompeii
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so there are multiple things that play into that that show that those these these dating techniques, at least as we apply them, seem to be very consistent and give us good results and and again, I would expect from a theological perspective, I would expect that to be the case, that God has created a universe, has told us to go out and look at creation, that that testifies to him, that as we look at and study that creation, that we're going to get an accurate, reliable picture of what he's done. Um, and I find that it aligns with what we find in the first chapters of Genesis and the rest of uh, what where, where the Bible talks about creation. And so I, I really do find that as you look at the total of the evidence, the scientific evidence and the theological evidence that having a year Earth that's four and a half billion years old, the universe is 13 billion years old, really does make the best sense of all the data. And it fits very well with uh, what, what Christianity has argued, or uh, the, the, the central message of Christianity that it has had all along.
0: Mm-hmm. And then what would be the, you know, maybe the one or two best examples of that, that analysis?
1: Well, I, I think, uh, you know, kind of delving into area that's a little bit closer to my expertise, the idea that the universe has a beginning. Um, you know, you you read that, again, God is the creator of all things, that he sustains all things. But, you know, you, you know, from Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created. But even in, you know, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. And in Hebrews, you've got this idea that all of creation had an origin, if you will. Well, when we look at what the scientific evidence has to say, places where the ev- where there's evidence to support our models, we find that a lot of those that evidence really does point to the universe having a beginning. Now, that's not to say science hasn't developed models that don't have a beginning. Uh, but when we look at where the evidence can discriminate against those models, the models that those evidence point to are the ones where there's a beginning. And so I think that's a remarkable thing because scientists by and large, uh, have not wanted there to be a beginning to the universe. And I think that's a remarkable one. Um, I think that the early chapters or in the early verses of Genesis, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. A darkness was on the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. That that's a description of how the early earth works, that it's dark, that there's no structure, that it's hostile to life. Um, that it 's covered in water, and yet so scientifically we can ask what did the early earth look like, and it looked just like that you know so and and then even just in the sequencing of uh, you know the formation of the day night cycle, the formation of the water cycle the the building of the land, the introduction of creatures on the land, and ultimately of humanity that sequencing. And Genesis 1 plays out and, and aligns up very well with what the scientific record has. I think that's powerful evidence that the God who created the universe is also the God who inspired Scripture.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Jeff, I don't know why I had you on for a half hour, because I'm just getting started, and I've got listeners coming in with questions all over the place. It is such an interesting topic, and I know it's one that's unsettled for many believers, and they don't know quite how to think. So I I so appreciate you coming on the program and giving us uh, your perspective.
1: Well, I appreciate that. And uh, maybe we could come back sometime and maybe be able to address some of those questions, because I do find this is a very robust viewpoint. Uh, that can withstand the scrutiny of questions. And and again, I, I think that's borne out by Scripture, having that sort of integrity, that it can withstand scrutiny like
0: that. Yeah. Well, we'll get you back. We'll make it an hour, and we'll let listeners know in advance that you're coming on so they can get their questions all fired up.
1: Well, thanks, Bill. I had a great time being here today. Thank
0: you. Me too. Dr. Jeff Swierink has been my guest. Go to reasons.org to learn more about Jeff and his colleagues. That wraps up our show for the day. I so appreciate all my guests Uh, Thank you to uh, Dr. Glenn Pickering and Angela Mills and uh, Dr. Z for making the show so wonderful. Go to MyFaithRadio.com. If you missed any of it, you can certainly go to the Afternoons with Bill show page and check out the podcast, which will be up and running in just about 10 or 15 minutes. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great night. I'll see you tomorrow.